um, it occurred to me that uh, about a year ago, I helped teach a, a class on Genesis, and now we're doing Exodus here. So if you let me do one of these every year, by the time I'm 96, we'll have this whole thing knocked out. So stick with me. Um, this, this class, I was telling Jeff, kind of evolved uh, several times over, uh, thinking about subject matter for, for today. I uh, was initially going to dive into a lot of historical background of, of Exodus and, and how the Israelites came to be there and you know what the rest of the area looked like around the time. And eventually I just kept coming to, okay, so what type of conclusions there. Um, so we're going to transition a little bit to... Um, occasions that they had for remembering the Exodus. You know, after all, we only get to read about this because it happened and people remembered it and then someone wrote it down, right? So uh, that's where we're going to eventually get to. But first, we are going to have a little uh, aside here. Does anyone know what this number is? It's the number of men over the age 20. There you go. Nice. Yep. That's. I was hoping someone would just say six hundred three thousand five fifty. Like, oh, that's the that's the easy answer. But, but uh, yeah, Jeff, where were you on that one? Um, no, that's exactly right. That's this is from the uh, the census that we see in Numbers, uh, but also echoed uh, in Exodus a little bit here. Um, so we'll see. And what I didn't realize until I started digging into a lot of this is this is this number is like the biggest stumbling block people have to. Uh, verifying the the historical authenticity of Exodus. And, yeah, I don't think there's much reason for that, as we'll see, but um, you, people will look at this and say, okay, if this is how many you know males you had, add some wives, add some children, pretty soon you're into the millions of people leaving Egypt, and then they'll compare that to the population in Egypt, uh, what it would look like going from Egypt to Sinai. I read one thing saying if they marched eight across... When the first ones got to Sinai, the last ones would still be in Egypt. I don't know. I didn't get out my map and, and draw that all out. Um, but we do know it's kind of threading the needle, right? We do know it had to be a big number. At the beginning of Exodus, um, talk about the new Pharaoh. He says, look, the people of the sons of Israel is more numerous and vaster than we. Come, let us be shrewd with them, lest they multiply. And then should war occur, they will actually join our enemies and fight against us and go up from the land. So we know we had a big enough number for Pharaoh to at least be concerned about, right? But maybe not so big that they weren't aligned from Sinai to Egypt at the same time. <clears throat> so let's try to dig into this number a little bit. Uh, does someone want to read Exodus twelve thirty-seven? So this is a, a similar number, you know, rounding off or, or whatever. You could say, okay, this is kind of verifying the number that we see in, uh, in numbers. How about, will someone read Exodus 30, 11 through 12? And how about Exodus 38, uh, 26? 
So there's that 603,550 number again, right? Um, and uh, what are we talking about here in, in chapter 30 is collecting uh, money for the tabernacle. Um, and the, the number here is uh, half a shekel, which is 20 geras to the shekel. So basically 10 geras uh, per person uh, will be collected. And then this word beka um, in, in chapter 38, uh, most everything I could find is it should be translated like division or part or portion. So this is just a portion for each individual. So then we can kind of ask this question uh, in chapter 38. Um, we've got 603,550 of what? Let's look at the rest of, of the surrounding verses uh, there. Maybe. So it starts in verse 21. These are the records of the tabernacle. Uh, we go on. Um, Sorry, chapter 38. So let's start talking about, and all the gold used for the work, in the work of the sanctuary, it was the gold of the wave offering, 29 talents. Silver recorded, 100 talents. So we talk about talents, talents, and then we get to this becca um, for the individual. Just as it was a becca for the individual, the half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel for everyone who was counted from 20 years old and above for 603,550. So what I'd maybe like to pull on this thread a little bit and go with me here is was what if that number was actually the number of geras that they collected? Because uh, that's kind of how it ends, right? It says for 603,550. Um, if we assume that that was the, the actual collection, divide that by 10, that's 60,355 people, which maybe is more plausible uh, in some of these accounts. But again, I, I don't really want to focus on the number here, but go with me on this on this theme. Uh, why were the people uh, having to pay in the first place? Let's go back to 11 and 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you count heads for the Israelites according to their numbers, every man shall give ransom for his life to the Lord when they are counted, that there be no scourge among them when they are counted. This shall each who undergoes the count give half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 geras to the shekel, half a shekel a, shekel, a donation to the Lord. So my version here says ransom. Uh, what other words uh, are you guys reading there as you look at your Bibles? I guess my other version I just pulled up says ransom. Does anyone have anything else different here? So I think this is interesting. Uh, reading the commentary um, in my Bible here, i just read this. It was a belief common to Israel and to the Mesopotamian cultures that it was dangerous for humans to be counted. Perhaps it was felt that assigning individuals in a mass, an exact number, set them up as vulnerable targets um, for evil forces. The story of David's ill-fated census in 2 Samuel 24, which triggers a plague, turns on this belief. The danger of destruction inherent in census taking could be averted by the payment of a ransom for each threatened life as a donation to the sanctuary. The supposed danger of the census thus became the rationale for the institution of a poll tax, uh, which was important revenue uh, for, for building the tabernacle and, and later maintenance. Um, so what if this number that we're quoting and numbers that we're looking at throughout Exodus are not really talking about 
uh, numbers of people, but rather this whole value, this ransom value that these people have, um, or another way to phrase it, this redemption value, if we want to go to this theme that, um, that we're kind of keep drawing on uh, through Exodus. Um, a couple other interesting things, if we're kind of turning into more of the symbolic language here. Um, verse 11, 12, uh, when it says, uh, when you count the heads, the, the literal term for this is, uh, say you at Rosh, lift up the heads. Does anyone's Bible have a little note there? If that's how it can also be translated. And then when we go to chapter 38, uh, the account of the tabernacle, um, the, the verb there uses pakad. Uh, which has all these these multiple meanings: um, appoint, muster, seek, desire, deposit, commit, entrust, um, reckon is another one. Um, so instead of counting, we've kind of got these two different ideas: uh, lifting up and entrusting. Um, and even in the the English words uh, count or reckon, I think it's kind of interesting. We have these double meanings, right? Like, what does count mean? You're you know, enumerating something, you're adding something up. Or it can also mean you're considering it, like count me out or count yourself lucky. Same thing with reckon. Uh, You can reckon something, count it, compute it. Or you can also consider it. You know, I reckon we should. No one says that anymore, but but you could if you wanted to. Um, So I think it's it's interesting, this idea uh, that we're, we're maybe not counting numbers. We're just assigning this redemptive value, this ransom, um, uh, value that God knows for his people. And I think it's it's not to be thought of like an actuarial value, like the value of a human life, because half a shekel, this is pretty small. It's symbolic. But really, you know, I think this idea that maybe we're uh, just counting up uh, the value of these people uh, to God, uh, and we're, we're kind of assigning them that value. At the same time, we're lifting their eyes. Um, if you're lifting your eyes, what does that imply about where they were before? right? Either down, you know, straight ahead. I think that's a a thread we see throughout the Bible is just try to lift your gaze a little bit higher, not get stuck in in the things of of maybe this world. Um, And we're also entrusting these people with with a special relationship with God. Um, I found this quote that I liked. It says, in being counted, the Israelites enter a field of promise and peril, for to count is to say what counts. That is what fits, what matters, what belongs. It is to become part of everything that exists. So here's my short summary on the the actual numbers. This is my 95% confidence interval on how many people there actually were. Pretty sure it's between 6,000 and 6 million. I don't know, (laughs) right? Everything I read reading up to this was, was, those were the bounds, basically. Um, And the the 6,000 was... You know, kind of this gymnastics of if you translate thousand, uh, the, the Hebrew word LF could mean chiefs or clans. So it's like that many clans with this many people in each one. Anyways, they add it up and you get to 6,000. And then, you know, kind of how many kids these, these 603,000 had, maybe you get up to 6 million. So anyways, um, I, don't, I don't think that's what, what matters here. Um, I think what counts is this, this redemption value. Um, that that God is assigning to the people. I think that's a pretty cool um, thing that we see here and, and probably a pretty cool uh, message that we can take today, right? You know, even 
even more so lately, it seems, in our time, you know, I'm an, I think, therefore, I am. I'm an individual, right? My value is just me, and I'm a tally, and I'm, you know, whatever I count, uh, when actually our value kind of comes from something higher, from, from God's ransom, uh, that, that he places value on us. And, oh, by the way, um, we know who paid that ransom, right, in Christ. So a little aside there from, from uh, the normal, but I think it was, it was pretty cool. Ah, Seth, I try to fix all these standard formats. I'm still getting it. I don't know what I'm doing. This was a, a verse from Isaiah I found just to finish this thought. This word musters here is that same uh, root, pakad, uh, which we saw. Uh, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who musters their hosts by number and all of them calls by name through abundant strength and mighty power. No one lacks in the ranks. So let's jump into uh, maybe remembering the Exodus a little bit here. Um, Why do we remember things? Yeah, yeah. It's I got to think of something because it reminds me of of what I'm currently going through, right? Um, what else? It brings to mind who God is and who we are and what He's done and what He could do. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's uh, kind of the the theme is you know we're looking at these next three things we'll look at is this is the present like what's the present that we're the Israelites were dealing with now that made them. Uh, you know, maybe remember the Exodus and sometimes forget the, what he could do, right? I think we do that too. Um, what else? Why do we remember things? Sometimes we're instructed to remember. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, uh, this is a little bit tied to the wind, but holidays or, you know, days where we were, you know, like Martin Luther King Day or President's Day or something like that. These are days we've set aside to remember. And like you said, um, we're called on, uh, to do a lot of this stuff, the Lord's Supper, for example. Um, so, yeah, when do we remember things? Holidays, special days, anniversaries. Um, That's a good She said, uh, we're creating God's image, and he's given us the ability to remember, uh, which is, is a great point. Um, yeah, so we've hit a lot of these. And, and, you know, another one I put down is one to remember, we'll see here in a minute, kind of right after the events, right? You do a little uh, debrief or what just happened. Or you went on vacation, and you're scrolling through your pictures on your phone on the plane, right? Um, that's kind of maybe what's, uh, what's similar here. Ah. I don't know. A couple quotes on looking back. I'll figure out this formatting one of these days. Um, anyone know what this image is meant to represent? Hmm? The women celebrating after the, the Red Sea? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So who would this one be? Mary. Yep, exactly. Um, let's turn to Exodus 15. If someone wants to read verse 21, or it's up there as well. Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. 
So how far removed are we from the Exodus at this point? <laughs> yeah, still kind of in it, right? Um, researching this, I think it was cool. You know, a lot of ambiguity in the first part of class here on the numbers and all that. Uh, this this phrase or this kind of couplet or poem, poetry here, uh, is kind of unanimously agreed upon to be one of the oldest pieces of Hebrew poetry that we have. Um, you know, some even speculate that it was uh, transcribed by an eyewitness, right, who's listening to this song, uh, which I think is is pretty cool. Um, here, you know, uh, this whole body of, of poetry and things that we have, uh, maybe the, the oldest one we have is right after the Exodus, um, and is Miriam rejoicing here. Another thing uh, in my translation here, you can see they, this word surged, um, which a lot of translations uh, we'll call triumph or be exalted. I just thought this was a cool side note. This verb, ga'ah, uh, means kind of both to triumph and be exalted or to rise uh, like the tides. So it's specifically calling out uh, the Red Sea and maybe the event that they, that they just uh, experienced there. Um, how about this picture? Anyone want to take a shot? King here, which king? Hmm? Solomon. Solomon. That's right. Solomon's court here. Uh, so let's jump to um, over to First Kings here in a minute. <coughs> so kind of set up the story here. Because um, joking to carry, I know First Kings is a well-trod path in everyone's Bible uh, reading. I know it's, it wasn't mine. Maybe it should be more. Um, so David passes the throne to Solomon. Solomon builds a temple, uh, which echoes the tabernacle construction uh, that we see in Exodus. Um, Solomon has a, a pretty good run, really. And then we come to this verse. Um, someone want to read that? First Kings 11, 11. Said to Solomon, Because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. So, what happened? I thought Solomon was doing pretty good. And then uh, then we get here. Uh, 1 Kings 9 20. Does someone want to read that? Oh, did I leave? What's the next verse? Keep reading a little bit there. Yeah. Yes, please. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, I left that, that one off there. Um, so Solomon's enslaving these other people. Who does this kind of sound like from the Exodus story? Huh? Yeah. First uh, Kings 11, 1 through 3. Someone read that, please. Then Solomon, <coughs> loved many foreign women, the 
And how about uh, 26 through 40, a little bit longer one here. Thanks, Vanna. So a little bit of the, the background there on, on, you know, what eventually becomes a splitting up of the, of the two kingdoms. Um, let's come back to 1 Kings 12 here in a minute. Um, so here's, here's kind of uh, the parallels here uh, we see between this story in Kings and, and Exodus. Um, what do we have the temple uh, standing in as the mirror image for? This one's relatively uh, easy here. It's the tabernacle. Who did we say Solomon kind of had, had become? from the Exodus story. Pharaoh. Uh, who does Jeroboam kind of mirror here? Moses, right? He, he flees, ironically, to Egypt, in this case, uh, comes back once Solomon has died. Um, Israel, uh, or, or more precisely later on, I guess, Judah or Jerusalem, um, kind of becomes Egypt here. Um, now let's go back to, I'm going to rewind here, Go back to First Kings. If some, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read twenty through thirty-one. First chapter. 
First uh, Kings, sorry, First uh, Kings twelve twenty through thirty one. It happened that just when all of Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the the assembly and made him king over all of Israel. Not one followed after the house of David except the tribe of Judah alone. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 choice troops, to fight with the house of Israel to restore the kingship to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Then the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and the remainder of the people, saying, Thus says Yahweh, You shall not go up and shall not fight with your brothers, the Israelites. Return each of you to his house, for this thing was from me. So they heeded the word of Yahweh, and they returned to go home according to the word of Yahweh. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he resided in it. Then he went out from there and built Penuel. There Jeroboam said to himself, now the kingdom will return to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem. The heart of this people will return to their master Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they shall kill me and return to him. And the king had decided, so he made two golden calves, and he said to them, You've been going up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He put one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. This thing became a sin. And the people walked before the one as far as Dan. Then he built the houses on the high places, and he appointed priests from all walks of life who were not from the sons of Levi. Um, so this one's pretty easy. Golden calves. Golden calf, right? Uh, it's kind of funny. You can picture Jeroboam here. He's trying to recast this Exodus story, right, for, for his people that he's brought in the northern kingdom. And this is what he chooses to go with as his, his theme. Like, what are, you, what are you doing? This is a bad, a bad thing from that. Um, and as we see, um, you know, that, that causes uh, eventually both kingdoms to, to fall into exile here, uh, which will parallel with the, the wilderness. Um, it's a bummer to go backwards here. Will someone read Second Kings 17, 1 through 8? Second Kings now, just making sure. Um, one through eight. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. And the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled in Anhala and Gozan on the Hazel River and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them Followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before. 
Thanks, Vanna. So that's the, the northern kingdom, Samaria, um, falling um, to the Assyrians. Daniel 1, 1 and 2 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand and some of the utensils of the temple of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the temple of his gods, and he brought the utensils to the treasury of his gods. So there's the southern kingdom uh, falling there as well. And really, this, this kind of whole story sets up the stage uh, for our next uh, remembrance here, um, coming back, right, uh, returning from Babylonian exile. At this point, uh, Babylon had subsumed, um, subsumed Assyria, so it was all Babylon at this point. Um, anybody want to take a shot at who this guy is or is supposed to be? Here's the temple over here. Here's the temple. Nope. Mm, that's that would be a good guess. Uh, Haggai encouraging the people to you know I would probably should have accepted either. That's fine. Um, so we're returning from exile here. Um, trying to look at time. Uh, will someone read? Or I'm just going to grab it. Um, Psalm 137. We're not going to read the whole thing. Uh, just. The uh, just the first verse by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat. Yes, we wept when we remembered Zion. So now we're kind of looking at the people uh, in in Babylon uh, as a mirror image for the people in Egypt, right? Uh, will someone read Ezekiel three one through eleven? So, you know, Ezekiel's having these visions uh, while he's in Babylon, and, and God tells him, you know, to go talk to the people. But what does he say about the Israelites? Basically, they're not going to listen, right? Um, kind of, to me, sounds like Pharaoh, right? His, his heart will be hardened. Um, you know, that's a little bit the, um, what we're looking at here. I'll read Ezekiel uh, 29 through 26. Um, and a lot of text here, but I think it's good because these aren't necessarily verses we... We read over all the time. Ezekiel 20, starting in verse 9. But I acted for the sake of my name, and to keep it from being profaned uh, before the eyes of the nations among whom they lived, where I made known to them before their eyes to bring them out from the land of Egypt. 
And I brought them out from the land of Egypt, and I brought them to the desert, and I gave my statutes to them, and my, my regulations I made known to them, which if a person does them, then he will live by them. And also my Sabbaths I gave to them to be a sign between me and between them, so they would know that I, Yahweh, am the one sanctifying them. But in the desert, the house of Israel rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my regulations, which if a person does them, he will live by them. And they greatly profaned my Sabbaths, and I decided to pour out my rage on them in the desert to destroy them. And I acted for the sake of my name, that it not be profaned before the eyes of the nations uh, before whom I brought them out. And also I myself swore to them in the desert not to bring them into the land that I had given to them, flowing with milk and honey. It is the most beautiful of all the lands, because they despised my judgments, and they did not walk in my statutes. And my Sabbath they profaned, for their heart was going after their idols. But my eye took pity on them by not destroying them, and I did not completely destroy them in the desert. And I said to their children in the desert, You must not go in the statutes of your parents. You must not keep the regulations, and you must not make yourself unclean with their idols. I, Yahweh, am your God, so go in my statutes and keep my regulations and do them. And treat my Sabbaths as holy, and there will be a sign between me and between you that you may know that I, Yahweh, am your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, and they did not observe my regulations, which if a person does them, then he will live by them. My Sabbaths he desecrated, and I decided to pour out my rage on them to finish my anger against them in the desert. But I withheld my hand, and I acted for the sake of my name, not to be profaned before the eyes of the nations before whom I'd brought them out before their eyes." So an interesting, you know, twist here uh, where we start talking about, um, but I said to the children in the desert. So you kind of get this idea of, of the two generations, uh, which we'll see echoed here in, in Nehemiah 9, which we're going to skip for now. Um, but Haggai uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Will someone read that? So that last, that last part there um, basically says that, you know, the temple will be re- rebuilt and it'll be uh, even greater than we had. I didn't have a book up here because there's several references, but this is about the, the timeline, I guess, of, of ending the exile um, and returning uh, 
so here's kind of the mirror images we have here again. Uh, the oppression um, from first the Assyrians and, and then Babylonians. Um, this one is kind of uh, a juxtaposition here. Um, you know, before you had freedom and departure from Egypt, now you have the destruction of the temple um, and deportation of, of people from, from Jerusalem. Kind of the same thing here um, where... Uh, oh, I put these backwards. Um, in Exodus, you're getting the revelation of the law, the covenant at Sinai, uh, building the tabernacle, um, you know, in coming back from the exile you're, or you're in captivity, you're getting Ezekiel um, talking to the people, but again, their hearts were hardened. Um, wandering in the wilderness, we could equate to returning, all right? It was uh, King Darius, uh, Persian rule at that point, and kind of also this idea of sins of the fathers. Um, we haven't talked about it much, but, uh, you know, wandering in the wilderness, uh, the first generation, right, none of them None of them got to go. None of them made it right. Um, and then breaching Canaan and finally rebuilding the temple, renewal of the covenant. Um, so Nehemiah 9 9, uh, which we'll kind of finish with, with this idea. You saw the misery of our ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their shout at the Red Sea. I'm going to go ahead and read um, a few more verses in, in Nehemiah. You gave signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all of his servants. And all the people of his land, because you knew that they acted arrogantly against them. You made a name for yourself, as it is this day, and you divided the sea before them, and they passed through the sea on dry ground, but their pursuers you threw into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. You led them by day with a calm of cloud and with a calm of fire by night to give them light on the way that they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right judgments and true teachings, good regulations and commandments. You made known your holy Sabbath to them and gave them commandments, regulations, and law by the hand of your servant Moses. You gave them bread from heaven for their starvation, and you caused water to go out from a rock for their thirst. You told them to go in order to take into possession the land that you've sworn by your hand to give to them. But they and our ancestors acted arrogantly and stiffened their neck and did not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders. Uh, that you did among them. They stiffened their neck in their rebellion, determined to return to their slavery, slavery. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loyal love, so you did not abandon them. Um, this, uh, one of the books we're reading for, for source material, he kind of has a comment uh, on this Nehemiah story. <clears throat> Through the sins of the father's motif, the Exodus story takes on a tragic cast with the result that the motif of promise is associated not with fulfillment, but with failure. Evidently, the praiseworthy memory of God's saving grace is inseparably linked with the shameful recollection of one's own unworthiness. This motif of sinfulness and guilt is especially prominent in the extensive and comprehensive retelling of the Exodus story found in Nehemiah, a protagonist of Israel's post-exilic reinvention. This tragic dimension withstands in such stark contrast to the story's triumphalist account of the downfall of the Egyptians and expulsion of the Canaanites was added to the tradition through the experiences of rupture, defeat, and deportation. Under these circumstances, bringing the Exodus story with its promises, salvational deeds, and divine guarantees of support into the present represents a typical act of contrapresentist memory, an intervention designed to repair the breach and salvage the covenant. And of course, we know. Uh, we made it all the way to Haggai. We didn't quite make it to the New Testament. But of course, we know what happens uh, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant uh, we have in Christ. So a little bit of homework here. Um, where is your present? Where are you presently um, in relation to these stories? Um, you know, are you in Egypt? 
Is there something in your life that kind of has you shackled and you can't get past? Are you in the wilderness? Are you at Sinai <clears throat> making a golden calf, right? All too unaware of, of God uh, and where he is in his presence in your life. Or, or maybe you're in Canaan and you're, um, hopefully you're not like Solomon, right? Getting complacent and, and stopping to learn. And, and uh, if anybody identifies with Solomon in here, they should have been teaching this class and not me. But, um, but anyways, that, uh, this is your, you know, your homework. This is uh, just something to think about as, as we go from here. Anybody have any, any final comments? And then we'll close in prayer. All right, bow with me. Father, we're so thankful for this day that we can come and just spend some time in your word, Lord, and just really uh, read your words uh, that are powerful, Lord, and just um, hear from you directly. We just um, hope that we can can glean something out of this, Lord, and that um, I just pray that I uh, got out of the way of, of your message and, and uh, let you come through, Lord. We, we're so thankful that you, you wrote us into your story, Lord, and that you give us value and that you redeem us and just help us to uh, seek and to serve you each day um, to that end of, of the redemption and eternal life we have in Christ. In his name, amen. Thanks, everyone. Seth will be picking it up next week.